being able to navigate a relationship where money's on the line, power is unclear and unequal, becomes very complicated. And so you having the ability to regulate your nervous system, to know what's your demon versus their demon, to know how to navigate their demon when it arises, is so important to being successful at the highest tiers of an organization. Can a deeper connection with one's inner self redefine the essence of confident leadership? If so, how does this introspective journey impact your ability to lead effectively and empathetically? Our next guest, Rachel Ryder, founder of MetaWorks, brings a revolutionary approach to this concept. Rachel believes that the key to confident leadership lies in understanding and navigating one's inner world. Her methods challenge conventional norms. In our conversation, Rachel unveils her unique insights on how leaders can cultivate awareness, balance power, and navigate their own and their team's inner demons. Get ready to explore the profound impact of internal clarity on leadership with Rachel Wright. My origin story is that I used to be in charge of firing a lot of people often. I was an HR generalist in a large tech organization, and it wasn't the only thing I did, but it was certainly a huge part of it, and I decided it was not the karma I wanted to be creating in the world. Um, uh, particularly, it was after one that I, I did a, a global layoff that I disagreed with. When I was aligned with it or someone was behaving poorly, it felt appropriate. Um, but when I when it went against my own value set and my own belief system, it really disrupted something within me. And so that's when I really began my journey about leadership development and executive coaching externally. Um, but also there's, it's been, since I was 13, I've been a long-term Buddhist meditation practitioner. And so I've always had a, a seeking heart, I guess you can say. And so it's been a very interesting confluence to me all my life. I've always enjoyed being in the professional world. And also I have a seeking heart to understand myself and others. And so it's a really beautiful marriage, those two, in terms of the work I do. And I think that's that's really what I spun together for myself over these years. Explain to us a little bit more what this seeking heart term means. For me, from a very young age, I always felt the yearning to feel connected to something bigger than myself. Um, I grew up in a home where I was exposed to a lot of different religions. My father came from a Catholic background. My mother from Jewish. My father was a Buddhist monk, that my mother met him at a Buddhist monastery there. So there was a lot of religiosity in the mix. And I was exposed to many different ways of thinking about the larger than us. My mother's also a psychoanalyst. So, she, you know, there's an exploration of the inner world. And for me, a seeking heart was always this hunger to understand what, what drove us and also what was bigger than us and, and how the two connected. 
um, in order for us to create a beautiful life for ourselves. So that's really what the seeking heart feels to me and continues to be within myself. It's a constant exploration for myself. And I think of myself as the product offering for my people. So I'm constantly working out the bugs. How did you find the transition, I suppose, 15 or so years ago, but bringing in the the spirituality side, I suppose, and that inner work into the corporate space? You know, there's a fair bit of skepticism around this sort of stuff that you play in. Um, that transition and explicit discussion about it actually hasn't happened until more recently. What would happen in the beginning is I was trained as a somatic experiencing practitioner. I don't know if you're familiar with the term. It's um, it's training in how to self-regulate the nervous system and how trauma is held at the body level and that it's difficult to work through trauma just with the cognitive. And so I actually brought that training into my coaching because I took the premise, not that we we're ever talking about trauma, but that people's nervous systems were responding to the workplace from places of their own trauma. I want to be very clear. I never discuss someone's trauma. If that arises in our sessions, they bring that to their therapist. But I am informed on understanding how someone responding to a certain circumstance might come from a place of trauma, particularly in the nervous system. What this might look like is an overreaction to something, an explosion of anger when feeling frustrated, an over-accommodating of saying yes, 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 and never following through because of an anxiety to say no. Those are held deep within the nervous system. And so early in my career, that was the language I would use. Let's explore your inner world and understand how the cognitive is connected to the body. And so that was much more user-friendly then. And then let's try to help you connect to that which is bigger than yourself. And so really it's been a journey for myself too to stand in my own confidence of being able to be explicit about this is what we do. It's mind, body, and spirit. And that's the only powerful triumph triumvirate that will get you to where you want to be. And I want to be very clear in terms of my work. Spirit is really about connecting to whatever feels bigger for you, that, that's bigger than yourself. Some people find that in golf. And that's great. What I want to do is help you find what that is so that we can leverage it and connect you into it during difficult periods in your professional work. It may be very much oversimplifying it, but it's really about trying to help people find stuff that makes them feel good. This is what I would say. Yes, and we need that in parallel with us disrupting behavioral patterns that are getting in the way. Because even if we find stuff that feels good, it's not going to help the way we're showing up at work, even if we can still feel good. And this is the premise of my work about it's held in the nervous system. There are some things that the body will always trump the mind if the body disagrees with a situation. So let's get specific. I have uh, a client who He's a CEO, the company's doing really well, and he's having panic attacks. And he didn't reach out to me to, you know, work through his panic attacks. Like, that's a therapist piece. He reached out to me so that he can pull himself 
out of the day-to-day. He can leverage his people more. He can do what he loves. And the panic attacks come up because when he's in these high-stake meetings, it's really disrupting how he shows up. His mind knows it's going to be okay, but his body is saying something else. And so it's not just in that moment us helping him find something good, but it's us disrupting his body's belief system that his body is in danger. And that's a part of the work. So yes, we need the good, but we also need to disrupt the stuff that isn't working. Makes sense. So you use a term like work is where your demons go to hide. Explain that a little bit more. You may have already explained some of it, but... Yeah, no, actually, this is a perfect way in. So I describe your demons as your behavioral patterns, particularly the ones... And so if if you're not clear on how to identify them, you could start with the thing you dislike most about yourself. That's usually a behavioral pattern that gets in your own way pretty consistently. And I would even go further than that and say, and it's probably most likely a survival mechanism that served you really well in your life. So one of my demons that I've worked very hard on over my lifetime is over-accommodating. It's the thing I consistently am disappointed in myself about and is one of the best survival mechanisms that got me so far. I'm really good at making people feel good. I'm really good at taking care of people. The over-accommodating goes into overdrive so that I can really read people very well. That is my demon and my survival mechanism. And one of the pieces that we talk about is how do you help your demons turn into your superpowers? Because they are, there is a grain of wisdom there. And so it's not that we want to get rid of them. It's that we want to educate them that actually they're operating with old information. And so, sorry, did I answer your question? I got pulled away into my own excitement. Yes, okay, work, yes. So in work, you know, I feel like there's a lot these days, it's really acceptable and actually often expected that if you're a certain educational level and privileged level, you have a therapist. And so often people are looking at their own relationships and how they're showing up in their lives and with their children, but they don't translate that to work. And so these survival mechanisms, these pieces that we struggle with ourselves, they just nestle themselves into our work and live and thrive there because we're not looking for them there. We're not bringing that curious inquiring mind about, oh, how is when I explode with my direct report actually a part of the things I've been struggling with within myself in most of my life. How did, have you explored the, I guess the inner working of your demon that you share this over accommodating? What does that look like if you're, if you're comfortable in sharing? Yeah. Have I? I mean, I have explored it so many ways. I'm trying to decide what's the most helpful to discuss. I think what's interesting is I have actually, I would say, two demons that partner really beautifully together, which is over accommodating and then brewing resentment. And they they're really perfect partners because what I will do is I will over accommodate, but then I will get. So like blindly rageful in my resentment, which becomes a protector 
of me over accommodating. It's like, hey, what about me? And so there's this really strong push-pull that so clearly lives within me, my ability to actually use my own voice and take up space because I'm certainly doing that when I'm self-righteously resentful. And so the examination for me has been knowing that these two energies can live within me at the same time. Why do they have to be at such extreme odds? And so a lot of my work has been actually bringing them closer together so that they're less extreme and they have kind of a stronger partnership. And so now when I feel myself getting a little resentful, that's a really beautiful cue to me that, oh, I've just said yes to a little too much versus I've made myself a doormat and now I hate you very much. Thank you very much. And so a lot of my work has been understanding my body's internal flags that I'm about to do something that's not going to be of service to me. Often my dog gets really tight or my stomach gets really tight and I get start getting acid reflux or I'll say or I'll notice I'll say yes and then I'll start to think of and don't you ever notice that I do this and this and this and you know I'm talking about my husband right now it's really beautiful <laughs> it's a be- and he's actually done a really nice job at reading no, he's not even hated to himself <laughs> <laughs> no but what I was going to say because he's a wonderful man is he starts to he can read he can read when my yes is a no and and I can know, and I start to be able to tell the moment my thought patterns become, don't you notice, dot, dot, dot. It, it disrupts the pattern so much sooner. And so actually I can overcorrect much more easily. So it's in a moment instead of a week. And that has taken so much of my own cultivation of my own self-awareness, a lot of grace, a lot of trust in myself that I am deserving of a voice and taking up space and really letting go of the power of my resentment. It was my only tool of power because I felt like otherwise I had no voice. And so that is a lot of the journey that I've been on myself in terms of my own work. So for those that resonate with that, and I can actually personally resonate with it as well, What's give us an example of the sort of work that you've had to do in order to get to the point that you've explained? I joke that I have a team. Like I spend where whatever comes into my business, I spend a huge portion of it on myself. And that team is made up of many people. I have a meditation teacher. I have an a somatic experiencing therapist. I have an acupuncturist. I have a personal trainer. And I I include her in this because a part of my journey has been feeling strong within myself. It was like I, um, I had chronic TMJ for a very long time because I was clenching my jaw. It was like the only way I could garner the strength to do things. And also like to, to, it was the way I also held my tongue in my resentment. It was a very, um, interesting dynamic. And so also, um, I have an energy healer. I do a lot of energy work. Um, I, because I live within the inner world, I, I am in connection with people's energies and managing that. And so this is my team and it took me a very long time to find them. 
And over the years, I've leaned in and out for a very long time. I was an intensive meditation practitioner. I do less of that now because I have two small children, but I do a lot of work in acupuncture and energy healing and therapy. Um, and so it really ebbs and flows. But what's very important to me is that I'm always seeking experts so that I can become an expert within myself. It feels like a process that's obviously very customized to the individual. So those things of over time, you build a team that works for you. What would you say to somebody, let's say like me, and maybe I'm not doing any work to identify some of these things that you've talked about, I'm not doing any work. What would you suggest to me to, hey, just make a start and this is where I think you could move forward and move to some change, let's say. I think that cultivating awareness is really a very powerful tool. And I like to tell folks that, you know, if meditation doesn't resonate with you, no prob. You can start to cultivate awareness by how people respond around you, particularly those who you love and respect. How are they responding to you in a moment? What are th- What is the feedback they're giving to you physically, you know, visually, and obviously verbally? But that there's this cultivation of awareness around how people are responding to you and what you were wanting from them or not. And that noticing if there's a pattern of where there's a disconnect, where is their flow? And I feel like that's a really beautiful beginning to start understanding, oh, what is the threat of my demon here? What might I want to do differently? And then to know then, oh, who can I reach out to to help me with that? I think the first step is really understanding how you show up in your life and how people respond to you in that. I'm curious how that lands for you. Yeah, it's really interesting. Where I'm, where my head's going, and certainly have a. You've got two young children. I've got older children, uh, but we do some work with with younger children also. So my head goes straight to your two beautiful children. I'm not not that I've met them, but I'm sure they're gorgeous. They are boy. <laughs> Probably, probably a bit troublesome from time to time, but I'm sure they're mostly gorgeous. How does this trans, how do you as this loving mother and this person that you know, is really focused on your, your inner self, how does that translate to your sort of a six, roughly and two-year-old in their life? How do, how do you impact them through this? Yeah, you know, um, I feel like they're my best teacher actually because they are a constant mirror for me about how I'm showing up, how am I containing my own self? Or like, you know, I grew up with this implicit and explicit um, phrase, I've done so much for you, the least you can do is dot, dot, dot. Where where did my over-accommodating come from? We don't know. (laughs) No idea, no idea. (laughs) Um, And this is something I've been really trying, I've been really working on how do I stay within my container, not over identify with my children, um, and then also not take it personally. And every time I notice that I actually become very overwhelmed when my children are overwhelmed, um, my particularly my oldest, when he starts to have a meltdown and I start to become, like start to kind of dissolve myself. It's become, speaking of us having body cues, that's the cue to me. Okay, Rachel, you have not contained yourself. Somehow you have merged with your son. You're over accommodating him and meeting him too much where he is and not holding the container of the space. And so that's 
what's really beautiful for me is in the moment it's not beautiful let's be very clear um but what is <laughs> what is jaw clenching from <laughs> Exactly. What is beautiful is me to be able to be like, oh, I see I'm doing this and bring it to my 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 SE therapist, you know. Um, and I even heard myself say to my son, I've done so much for you. The least you can do is. And I was like, "Ooh, no, uh, no, I'm not doing that. And so the What's really been helpful for me in terms of translating my own work into my children is it being, speaking of feedback, that feedback loop of like, I'm doing a good job, everyone's self-regulated in this moment, or I am not doing a good job because I am just as bad as my children right now. Yes, unfortunately, again, I can relate to that exact statement. I use it too often myself. No Please help me. <laughs> It sounds like this episode is is my own therapy session. It's my pleasure. It's my offering. Thank you. Um, let's go back to us old farts. How does this stuff translate to leaders in the workplace? Yeah. One of the premises of my work is that your relationship is your deliverable at the highest um, echelons of an organization. It is. If you are trying to get the work done, you are doing the wrong job. Unless you are a solopreneur, and then I, I, sh I should tell you to hire a team. <laughs> but your people are the ones who need to be doing the work, and you need to have a strong, trusting, candid relationship with your people in order to ensure that they know what's expected of them, they know what success looks like, and they know how to communicate to you when those things aren't happening. Being able to navigate a relationship is difficult. Being able to navigate a relationship where money's on the line, power is unclear and unequal becomes very complicated. And so you having the ability to regulate your nervous system, to know what's your demon versus their demon, to know how to navigate their demon when it arises, is so important to being successful at the highest tiers of an organization. And that's really the premise of my work. That's usually why people are coming to me. Do you, do you see a regular demon show up? Like, is there some consistency around a, a certain demon behavior that you, you see mm -hmm. too regularly? I would say I see themes. So one is because I work with people who run organizations, there is a theme around power. And often I see it go two ways. And obviously on a spectrum or continuum, but it is either I am terrified of the power that I hold. I'm embarrassed of it. I don't know how to embody it. I therefore am very unclear. I try to empower my people by letting them make decisions and then they're not the decisions I want that kind of issue with power, or an over-leaning into the power because I feel so fragile inside, which is, I am in charge. You need to do it my way. There's no other way to do it. People struggle to work with me. I'm highly critical. I'm highly demanding, and I'm very brittle inside because if it's not my way, I'm terrified of failure. Something's going to go wrong. 
And so I see that often as a continuum. And that's often the work I'm doing is to help someone identify their power within them and to really understand how that manifests for them and how does that translate for them and who they are. You know, there's so many best practice books about how to be a good leader. And most of them have really good stuff. But the issue is, how do I translate it to me with my baggage and my issues, but also my value set and what lights me up inside? And that's really the juicy, sexy work for me, because that's where we get to learn about your inner world. We get to unravel unhelpful belief systems and behavioral patterns so that kind of the best you emanates. What sort of things, uh, belief systems, that sort of stuff underpin what you've just explained, that sort of continuum, that continuum of power? So I literally just met with a, a CEO and she was, she's the founder and sole owner of the company. It's a eight figure company. So doing pretty well, small shop where she was like. I don't want it. I don't want this. Why? Why? You know, people are coming to me and I'm like, I don't know the answer. This woman has been running this company for a very long time. But this is, we were, this was a deep conversation. You know, that's the other, I feel so privileged to be in the room. She's not saying this out loud, obviously, often. And so for her to feel safe enough to say, I don't know the answer. I don't want these people coming to me. Obviously, that's not all true because she is running a very successful company. But that living within her belief system that she doesn't want it then creates this very bizarre mixed messaging that she's giving her team, where she will have lots of opinions, but then she will say things like, oh, go figure it out, or whatever you think. But then she's really pissed off because it isn't whatever you think. And so that's a great example of the I don't want this. And it's very, but, but what's really underneath that is I don't feel good enough. Who am I to tell these people what to do? Who am I, you know? And so that's really the world we're living in versus on the other end of the spectrum, I have um, the CEO who is the, I think I mentioned this earlier in our conversation is having panic attacks, but he runs things very strictly and um, has very strong feelings about things. And, but what's underneath that is this terror of if they don't do it my way, and he's, um, it's not a privately held company. He's got stakeholders and, you know, people who have shares in the company, which makes it more loaded, but still this very brittle belief system because that's the only way he can hold it together. So it's not shocking that he's having panic attacks. Did I answer your question about how this looks? Yeah, you did. And and if I, I think you've given, again, you, you certainly mentioned that the chap earlier, but great examples of heads of companies, one's private, one's sort of public shareholder based. But what are we doing in your opinion in corporate culture, let's say corporate environments, that even the head of the company doesn't feel like that they can have this sort of level of self-expression, this level of vulnerability. They're like, they're running the show. 
you know, I, I think that it's a big, I think it's bigger than that. I think it's capitalism. Um, I really, I think the expectations and the messaging of what is demanded of people running companies is a setup. And one of the things, actually, one of my passions is working with leaders to really examine what is a learned cultural pillar from the outside versus a pillar they want to create within themselves. And so I actually, um, I haven't mentioned this yet, but another piece of work that's very important to me is anti-racism work for myself as a white woman um, and really examining my own internalized racism and whiteness and white supremacy. And the reason why I bring this up is because in my work, really understanding white culture and these perfectionist culture, this good or bad culture, this either or culture is, um, it's a very powerful model that if we actually take a magnifying glass to particularly with leaders of companies and say, well, what is right here? Is there a right or wrong or a good or bad? And instead of it being perfectionism, um, what is the scale of performance in your definition? And I think if we can help heads of companies bring a magnifying glass to their company, really trying to challenge what is the status quo that they've assumed makes a successful company versus what do they think will actually make it successful, I think we'll start to unravel some of this, actually. Somebody a long time ago said to me that it's never the system that's broken, it's the people running mm. the system. So let's take back to the, the point you make around capitalism as an example. If we use that philosophy, then like, what, what's your opinion? Is it, is it actually the capitalism is the system that I think my view has served the world pretty well, um, but there's people driving that system. Can you yeah, it's a it's a mixed bag, you know. It's like religion. I am a very spiritual person, and I I feel very strongly that religion is important, and religion has been responsible for pain, oppression, mass killings, and I think capitalism is the same. I am a firm beneficiary of capitalism. I love it in terms of my own beautiful life that I have made because I have thrived off of capitalism. Um, so I think the structure, I think it's a fair assessment to say that the structure may not be a disaster, but what we have done with the structure. But I think at this point, it's so intertwined with us, particularly as white individuals, that, um, it's helpful to examine it at that level to help us challenge it and depersonalize it a little to say, okay, if this isn't me, if this is capitalism, how can we unravel it without making you good or bad or me good or bad and more of, hey, maybe we want to do it differently. Yeah, again, I do, I do like that approach. I'm, I guess some of my background, I 
an extensive part of my background is that business improvement mm. side of things and process improvement. And you know, it's not the people, it's the system. So I myself sit in not sort of understanding the capitalism side of things or making a comment on that, but it's more, I am even with what that person told me some years back, which I think, wow, it, it is. And, and I see that so many times, but there are broken systems as well and people work very well um, and they actually accommodate so many broken systems in a working environment. So it's, mm. it's sort of like, uh, I can't have my cake and eat it too sort of thing. I don't, I don't really know where I sit on these sort of things because I, I see both sides of the equation every day. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think what you've just highlighted is it's not black and white. And I really, that's actually one of, yeah, exactly. And I think that's a theme of my work is the moment it feels black and white is the moment you're operating from an unhelpful place. I, I go as far as to say you're coming from a trauma place because a black and white brain is it's like either I'm going to die or everything's okay. And that's just not the nature of reality. And so I feel like whether we're talking about an ecosystem, a, a, a larger system such as capitalism, um, or, you know, the system of a company and decisions that need to be made. I am a firm believer that there is no either or in a decision, but there is a plethora, kind of I like to talk about the rainbow brain um, of, of options. And so if we get stuck in the either or, then something's wrong. So I think you straddling both is a good sign. So I shouldn't say, Rachel, you're wrong, I'm right, and we're in this interview now. <laughs> I, w I would say, you might be missing the point. That's what I would hazard a guess. <laughs> you're so calm and collected. I love it. Must be that Aussie influence that we have camera. <laughs> in, in terms of leadership and these demons that hide at work, how do give us some examples of how these demons influence our, our decision-making uh, how we're leading teams and the impact on the team dynamics and that side of stuff. It it sounds like a big basket of stuff potentially. Yeah, and actually I you did ask earlier if there's a demon that I see often, and I will say there's one that I particularly see in American business culture. I don't know. I'm curious actually if this is the case um, in Australia. Urgency, false urgency. Everything is urgent. I need to respond to this slack immediately. Why didn't you get back to me within the last three hours? And what's, I see you laughing, so that must mean that you have this in Australia. <laughs> it, it raises its head from time to time, yeah. can I say? So this is actually... A, in all of us, me included. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, exactly. And so this is actually a piece of work I often do with CEOs is to deeply examine that urgency. What, what is urgent? Like, is it 2 a.m. and a server is down and the, the, the office in China doesn't have the data that they need to make the, the exchange? Like, is that what's going on? If it is, fair. I hear that. I've worked with people who have that. I would say 80% of the time that it's not the case. And even, even if it is 2 a.m., I would say you can still get up and walk to the bathroom because in that walk your brain gets a little clearer you get a little more perspective you have the ability to come back to the problem a little better because one of the issues with urgency as a demon is rash decisions are made 
people talk to each other poorly, that consistently urgency does not bear very good fruit. And so I would say that that's a really beautiful example about how that unhelpfully manifests in the workplace. And I would say that's a really great place to start. Um, you know, this is connected, that urgency feeling is connected to the nervous system. And so often, if you're feeling urgent in a less urgent situation, we need to help your brain understand that it's less urgent. So you got to, the, the first step is orienting. How important is this? Will the client actually cancel their contract if I don't respond to them at 9 p.m. at night? You know, is, and I'm really walking through that. And then once you're cognitively on board that this may not be an emergency, then your nervous system needs to get on board. And that's actually much harder. And I, I'd like to say, uh, again, to depersonalize, like, if your nervous system isn't on board, it's coming from a very early, young place. That's a really good sign that maybe this isn't a response to the current situation, but a response to something younger. And then to be able to engage that in a very different way, it unravels the, the issue at hand right now in the moment. Have you got an example you could share? Obviously, this is probably not something that covers, is all encompassing, but that uh, potential scenario or scenarios, that environment that could create that at a very young age. Mm. I want to make a disclaimer. I'm not an expert here. I have had training in this, but I'm not an expert. And I would say it's needing to... Yeah, I guess I am being a little bit unfair because you said during the show, you're not therapist. You said before the thing, you're not therapist and they're expert. But, but I did grow up... I did grow up with one and amidst them, so. Do we need to phone a friend? <laughs> no, I got this one. I got it. Um, I would say uh, I would often show up in a very volatile environment, um, one where you need to be managing and managing quickly, consistently, and always on your toes. You've got an explosive parent. You've got parents who explode with each other when they're in the room. If you're always walking on eggshells, the, I can like even feel it in my body when I talk about this, like there's urgency always. You are constantly alert, waiting. And so our, the technology doesn't help. We've got Slack, we've got email, we've got our phone, we've got a, I was going to curse and I don't know if children listen, but an Apple watch, like every, you cannot get away. And so it just reinforces this you know, early felt sense that I need to be on top of things at all times or everything's going to fall apart and go to shit. Mm. Yeah, notification after notification after notification. But exactly. where does personal responsibility sit in that context? Well, and that's the thing that I think, again, is related to this nervous system training. That's where you, when we were talking about earlier in this conversation, where do you begin to cultivate awareness? Do you notice that this is not healthy for you? Are you reaching for your phone at 9 p.m. at night and reading your email and then like shooting off an email quickly because God forbid you wait until 8 a.m. the next morning when you would have a clear mind? If you start to pay attention to that, you can then create boundaries for yourself. Like my company, no one's allowed to send an email after 5 p.m. Even if they drafted it themselves because they wanted to work on a different hour, they have to schedule it for the next morning because our clients need to know we do not respond outside of hours. And that's just like, so that we are cultivating boundaries for the company and within ourselves. So I don't have work email on my phone. 
I don't have Slack on my phone. That's for me because I know I can get crazy. I know I'm like shaking if I see a Slack message that I do not agree with at 9 p.m. at night because I have a team member in a different time zone. So that's where I think personal accountability comes in. What sort of role does Hubby do? He is a leader of software engineers. So we actually overlap very much. He has a team of... And like, tell me how you, good he is at this stuff. What do you think? How are you, how are you, tell, tell me how good he is at this stuff. How are you, are you coaching him along the way? Is he answering emails at all sorts of times of the day or night? That's so funny that you say that. Uh, I would say two things. A few years ago, we've been together for 15 years. So a very long, well, in my mind, a very long time. Depends on who you talk to. Um, like you've had a lot of time to help him then. My, my wife has had a lot of time to help me. <laughs> well, what's funny is it's always been my dream for me to be helpful to him, but like coaching is not allowed for him. However, what'd you say? He doesn't always see it that way. Well, what's funny is we can't have a coaching conversation and he like smell, he'll smell if I'm like moving into coaching mode. <laughs> With that being said, let me tell you a few years ago in conversation with someone else at a dinner party, he told them that I was the reason why he kept getting promoted into management positions. So it warmed and melted my heart. And so I think we offer each other a lot, even if I'm not allowed to coach him explicitly. It sounds like you need to get him to do a testimonial on your website. <laughs> I never saw that. But, oh, sorry. And I didn't answer your other question, which is I have very strong opinions about how he manages boundaries with his work, work which is he doesn't. So we haven't gotten there yet. But interpersonally, he's amazing. That's fantastic to hear. Um, you mentioned a little bit earlier, and I sort of know here about learned versus created pillars. Can you can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. So, learned pillars are like things like I'm trying to think of a positive way to say this instead of just the negative. But like, we work doesn't end until the project's over. Sleep when you die. Those are, I would say corporate expectation pillars versus I would say pillars that come from within, which is fail first. Um, you know, again, that's, I was at a company that had that and they, you know, they tried, they tried to support failure. Um, but boundaried work, you know, that where there's a real examination of what is the culture that we're creating or curiosity first. I did see that as a pillar once and the, co and the company really exemplified that. Like there were no mistakes there. Well, there were mistakes, but there was no finger pointing. It was, Hey, what happened here? And that really changes the course of a conversation. How do biases, how do these demons play out in biases if, if they indeed do what kind of biases are you talking about are we talking about like cultural or are any, we talking about any bias that i mean in today's world there seems to be a bias for everything at least a name for for it so you you choose well this is what i would say 
Um, I'm not an anti-racism expert, so I won't speak to that. But I will say that our demons create our reality. So if I am in the room with you and I think that you're criticizing me because I feel constantly criticized, that is my reality. Even if maybe you weren't, maybe you were making a suggestion about a project that we're working on. So, um, you know, a great example, actually, is um, I often am working with CEOs who feel frustrated because people aren't pushing back on them. And the bias for, like, say, someone who is working for a CEO and they're like an over-accommodator like me, a CEO gives them a direction and they say, oh, yes, of course, even if it completely disrupts their year's plan and makes them deprioritize all the priorities that the CEO has asked for. This is an issue. What the CEO really wants to know is, is this a good idea? What is going to get in the way if you do this? But the over-accommodator, because of their own demon, isn't saying, hey, just to let you know, happy to do this, but um, we're going to have to deprioritize these three things. Does that work for you? And so this is why <laughs> it becomes a cluster issue. I won't curse again. Sorry, got bad. That I'd like. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Here, may not watch. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but that because everyone is everyone's living in their own movie, and and so when you come up against someone else's movie, if you're not even trying to understand their movie, it becomes a total mess. And that's why understanding your own demons, being able to pick up on someone else's demons, and then coming together and having a conversation. It doesn't even have to be a deep one, but it could be like to your CEO, hey, um, when you ask me that, do you realize what you're asking? And just tell me if that's okay with you. That's the way that you're actually disrupting the bias within your demon. And that's why it's so vital for you to have a sense of what's going on here and for the CEO to know who they're in the room with. So that if they know that one of their people is an over-accommodator, they can say, this is what I'm thinking, but I need you to tell me what would get in the way for you if you were to execute on this. And so that's really where, again, it also disrupts the bias of the CEO who's just kind of pointing and shooting and saying, go do. It, it also feels like to me that back to way back to the top of the show, I suppose, where your work is underpinned around relationships, like the level of relationship helps impact that both if it's a strong relationship and they're deliberate about building these relationships and continuing the focus, then that gets easier. People learn about each other's demons and styles and those sorts of things. But if the relationships are not there, even when something's meant with good intent, it's not always taken with the right intent. Exactly. And it can be surprising how often that happens. We're like deer in headlights. The leader's like, wait, what? I did. No, that's not it. You know, and that's why it's so important to be talking and asking questions. I've spent hundreds of hours interviewing leaders across business and sport. From this, I've collated 10 of the most practical leadership strategies to help you be a confident leader and enhance the performance of your team. Download your free workbook containing these 10 strategies at thecultureofleadership.com. Don't wait. Unlock your leadership potential today. 
we've unpacked a, a fair bit, I think. Now, in your and you've I think you've mentioned a, a few things along the way, absolutely. But what are what are some sort of proven strategies for you? Some techniques that you know people can leave after watching and listening to this episode that they can take something from. Um, your this is your opportunity to keep impacting others outside of your current world. I think I would say this. I'll say three things. The first one is cultivating awareness cannot be underestimated. Pay attention. And you can start with people who you respect. You know, the people that you don't care about, you can, you know, collect that information later. But really pay attention to how do people respond to you and how do you want them to respond to you? What's the disconnect? Where is there a connect? How's that working? That's great beginnings of data collection to understand the themes of what you might want to be paying attention to. The next thing I would say is an ongoing conversation between your head and your heart is very important. And you could call the heart the gut. I would say whatever it is, the non-thinking part of you that has a sense of truth because the head and that part of you really need to be on the same page. Because when you're not, there is a constant piece of friction. It's like that example of the CEO I told you earlier where she's giving constant mixed messages. Because she knows she wants to be in charge, but she really doesn't believe she is. When you see conflict, instead of trying to override one or the other, help them have a conversation and see what arises out of that. Because they both have wisdom. And you get to be the final arbiter. And the last piece I would say is do not underestimate the power of visualization. We didn't talk about this much, but it's so helpful to the nervous system, particularly when you're feeling stuck. And, and I would say, and within your relationships with people. And to really use that as um, a tool to help you either regulate your nervous system or call in an energy that you wish that you could have in this moment if you're feeling angry call in that calm avatar that makes you feel calm that visualization can really be a powerful tool for your own nervous system even if you don't even understand how your nervous system works it's a great point thanks for bringing it up talk to visualize maybe talk to your own scenario and how you use visualization with your work oh yeah i use it in so many different ways it's actually one of my favorite tools one of the ways i use it is that head in the heart i will ask people to tell me the visual that they have of what their head looks like does it have an avatar does it have a color the heart does it take up a certain avatar color when you can visualize them it's easier to see them have a conversation i say invite these guys to tea and join them and that yeah see it just brings a smile it's like it changes the atmosphere and so i do that for myself a lot and do that with my clients i also um i've done a lot of visualization work when there's a client who's really struggling with showing up in a certain way different from what they've been doing and so I have them call in a superhero or a person in their life who exemplifies that for them. So I once had 
a client who um, was really struggling to speak up against her boss. This was a long time ago when I worked with um, leaders of different levels. And I told, we were talking about what energy would she want. And she talked about her sister-in-law, who she actually found quite abrasive. But she envisioned her abrasive sister-in-law, who is a, def a defense attorney, in the room with her, with her boss. And she was able to channel that energy a little so that she could show up in a different way. So that's what the power of visualization can do is really change your internal energy so that you can show up in the way you want. Yeah, it's for my own work that I do where I, I, I haven't used it with clients actually. And I love that tip. Thank you very much. The for my own process, and let's say I'm running a an offsite or a workshop for a day or a half day, two days, whatever it is. But when I'm driving to that location, I have I'm normally listening to podcasts and not my own podcasts, other people's podcasts mostly, but listening to different things on the radio on the yeah, for podcasts. I turn everything off as far as that goes and. I'm driving, driving's not difficult, you know, you just do. So I'm using that time to visualize less more less about some of the things you mentioned, but more about the process that we're going through today, some conversations that may come up, what I need to make sure I'm focused on it. And and just visualizing that process of of putting my best self there for the client or for the team that we're that they're working with. So I I definitely, definitely hear what you're saying and it can be used in so many different aspects. I'm a mad cricket fan and a guy, uh, Australian opener, fantastic opener, Queenslander as well. So I'm a Queenslander, so I love this guy, Matty Aiden. He used visualization powerfully for his batting. So he would sit at the crease and just sort of hold his bat in front of him and just in the moment for quite a long time from what I understand and just visualizing his batting and bowlers coming in. And it's just unbelievably powerful, isn't it? Everyone that sort of does it takes the time, but you don't, you don't talk, you don't find anyone that talks badly about visualization. I know. You know, Einstein wrote a quote that I, I just love. I recently was reading it, so it's top of mind. I won't do it justice, but that he basically said that everything is energy and the concrete matter is just the lowest vibration of energy, but all of it is energy. And that resonates so much with me because visualization is invoking an energy. And so if you can connect with that, you emulate it. And I, I totally understand what you're talking about with the podcast and the cricket because I have found too when I, and that's another way that I find it so powerful, is visualizing how I feel after something. That, and, that, and the way I feel and the expansive expansion and that, that after visualization, that experience comes into the now and it changes how it goes. And so it's just, I, you know, all of its energy. It's really powerful. It's almost like magic, but it's not because it's real. Well, the crazy thing is too, not crazy, but I do it for podcasts and I visualize that we would have an unbelievably fantastic conversation today. And that's what's happened. So how good is that? I, I, same. We did great. We did. Well, that high five. <laughs> you know what, Rachel, that is the first time I've done a virtual high five with anybody. No way. Mm -hmm. I'm on. <laughs> well no one's ever done it I've never thought about it. that's awesome I, I love it too thank you very much Let, let's finish with our last question Rachel what is this 
thing or a thing that's helped you become a more confident leader? Mm. Knowing that it's all within myself, the good and the bad. I just have to find it. Hey. I like that. Actually, I love that. And what, what I loved actually about this interview, just to close out, is that you're um, considered and you take that breath and really purposefully deliver something that's obviously meaningful to you. You've got great experience on the ground and living and breathing what you've been talking about. So nice, calming nature. Like we said pre-recording, I can see where you're doing impactful work with your clients and future clients going forward because I'm sure there's a lot more people that you want to impact moving forward. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. I feel like you bore witness to what's important to me. So, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing with our audience. I really appreciate that. Uh, and once again, Rachel, you've been a fantastic guest. Thanks for coming on The Cultural Leadership. Such a pleasure. Thank you. No other words sum up this conversation better than what Rachel said makes her a confident leader. Knowing that it's all within myself, I just have to find it. These are my three key takeaways from my conversation with Rachel. My first key takeaway, confident leaders cultivate awareness. They pay close attention to their surroundings and how people react to them. They recognize their own inner demons and those of their team, knowing that these influence their decisions and shape their realities. My second key takeaway, confident leaders use visualization. They value the power of visualization, not just as a tool, but as a way to positively influence their nervous system and invoke a certain energy. This practice helps them prepare mentally and emotionally for various scenarios, enhancing their ability to lead with clarity and focus. My third key takeaway, confident leaders balance their power. They know when to take charge and when to adopt a more democratic approach. Their ability to adapt their style according to the situation or decision is critical. This helps ensure they meet the needs of the moment while maintaining respect and authority. So in summary, my three key takeaways were, confident leaders cultivate awareness, confident leaders use visualization, and confident leaders balance their power. Let me know your key takeaway on YouTube or at thecultureofleadership.com. Thanks for joining me and remember, the best outcome is on the other side of a genuine conversation.